0: Psalm 25, we'll we'll read the entirety of the psalm. And so we'll begin here at verse 1. Here once again, the infallible, the inerrant word of our God. A psalm of David. Unto thee, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. O my God, I trust in thee. Let me not be ashamed. Let not mine enemies triumph over me. Yea, let none that wait on thee be ashamed. Let them be ashamed which transgress without cause. Show me thy ways, O Lord. Teach me thy paths. Lead me in thy truth and teach me. For thou art the God of my salvation. On thee do I wait all the day. Remember, O Lord, thy tender mercies and thy loving kindnesses. For they have been ever of old. Remember not the sins of my youth, nor my transgressions. According to thy mercy, remember thou me for thy goodness sake, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore will he teach sinners in the way. The meek will he guide in judgment, and the meek will he teach his way. All the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth unto such as keep his covenant and his testimonies. For thy name's sake, O Lord, pardon mine iniquity, for it is great. What man is he that feareth the Lord? Him shall he teach in the way that he shall choose. His soul shall dwell at ease, and his seed shall inherit the earth. The secret of the Lord is with them that fear him, and he will show them his covenant. Mine eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he shall pluck my feet out of the net. Turn thee unto me, and have mercy upon me, for I am desolate and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are large. O bring thou me out of my distresses. Look upon mine affliction and my pain, and forgive all my sins. Consider mine adversaries, for they are many, and they hate me with a cruel hatred. O keep my soul and deliver me. Let me not be ashamed, for I put my trust in thee. Let integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait on thee. Redeem Israel, O God. Out of all his trumpets. Amen. And may the Lord add to us this morning. The blessing of his word. We take up once again. Psalm 25. And I said to you. When we did so last midweek. That this is a psalm that isn't a it. It's a kind of primer. It's a way of instructing those. Who would worship God in spirit and truth. How to do so. By giving to them the fundamentals. Of real godliness. As it were, the foundations of of, of a life with God. But as we come to Psalm 25, we can't miss, of course, that this is a psalm that comes to us through affliction. This is an acrostic writ in affliction, writ in pain. And because, friend, we read in Psalm 25, a man who is under duress, a man who seems to be desolate, he describes himself this way, well, what are we supposed to expect his petitions are like? What is it that is his primary cry to God, as he is a man, as it were, stripped bare in this moment? Well, friend, as we look at this text, what strikes us is that this is a man who certainly is making petition to God, but he's doing so with expectation. He's not only a petitioning psalmist, he's an expectant psalmist. He goes to God with certain hopes, certain expectations. And friend, as we come to the Word this this morning, I think it's fitting for us to ask ourselves the question, are we an expectant people this morning? What do you expect this morning? As you come to sit under the Word of God, and as you come to sit at the Lord's table, are you an expectant person? You see, how you answer that question really will form the connection between yourself and the psalmist, or it won't. The psalmist here is a man who expects much from his God. The psalmist is a man who has, has, as it were, stripped down to the fundamentals. Well, friend, fundamentally, he's an expectant man. Are we such people? But as we come to this text, it's important for us to remember that we are doing so, looking primarily at how this man deals with God. He's, of course, an expected man, but he takes these expectations back to the Lord. As our principal text is the 14th verse, i just call your attention back to it for a moment. The secret of the Lord is with them that fear him, and he will show them his covenant. In one sense, friend, in this 14th verse, you have the foundation, as it were, the bedrock for every petition that's gone before, and also the grounds for every expectation and every hope that he has. The 14th verse in some sense becomes for us the nexus for the entirety of the psalm. It becomes for us even the foundation. And so we take up once again this 14th verse with the intention of answering that question. What is the basis for the man's expectation in Psalm 25? And we're asking that question because here the psalmist is not just showing us himself for his own sake. We're not reading this of course simply because we like to indulge in some kind of ancient religious soliloquy. We're doing this because here the Spirit of God is showing us a cross-section of the man, of the woman of faith. Of a soul that is really in communion with God. And so we take out verse 14. And we find here in that second line an explanation of the first. We said that last time we were together. We said, of course, the secret of the Lord is parallel to what you have in the second line, and that is the idea that the Lord will show them His covenant. The secret of the Lord is his covenant. But what does it mean here? As we look at this psalm, as we look at the idea of this covenant revealed, what does it mean that the psalmist himself expects, as he numbers himself among those who fear the Lord, this covenant to be revealed to him? Now, friend, to answer that question, we do need to look at the psalmist's entirety, just briefly. As you look throughout this altar... And throughout Psalm 25 especially, you'll find the idea of covenant is not a small theme at all. It becomes really foundational for all of the saints' petitions. And our psalm is no different. I just direct your attention here for a moment to what you have in the sixth verse. He cries, Remember, O Lord, thy tender mercies and thy loving kindnesses. Now, as we look at that text and as we look at that word, it's a word, of course, that comes to us several times throughout the scriptures that word, loving kindness. But as you look throughout the Scriptures and how it's used, friend, that word is not a term that describes God's general benevolence. The loving kindness of God is never used to describe God's general favor, His general goodness to all. The word loving kindness has a very specific and a very technical use in the Scriptures. You could translate it rightfully, His covenant love. Just to give you an example, take Isaiah 55.3, what we read as are called to worship. That word is translated there, the sure mercies of David. It's the same word in our text, verse six of, of Psalm twenty-five. Elsewhere, in Isaiah 63, it's translated thus the great goodness toward the house of Israel which he hath bestowed on them according to his mercies, and according to the multitude of his loving kindnesses. That is, those things that God has given specifically to those who are his covenant people. That is the loving kindness of God. That is the loving kindness, the sure mercies that the psalmist has in view. And you see, friend, the sense is here. He's looking here to God as he is a God in covenant. The idea of Psalm 14 then becomes the bedrock for the petition of verse 6. Sorry, Psalm 25:14 becomes for us the foundation for Psalm 25, verse 6. That sixth verse is already looking to what you have in our text. The idea that God has indeed entered into covenant. And that from that covenant he expects mercy. From that covenant he even expects special grace. And so friend. As you look at this text. And you hold it in comparison with what you have in Psalm 17. You'll find this. The psalmist prays. Show thy marvelous loving kindness. Our word. And to whom is it shown? To those saved by thy right hand. Which put their trust. In thee. Friend, what the psalmist has in view throughout all of Psalm 25 is that covenant that is the principal aspect of our text. It is just this, that God has made a covenant, and from that covenant, special grace is known to those who trust in him. But if that's the covenant that leads us to the next question, what does it mean for the Lord to show these things to him? And to answer that question, I want you to look at the text again, verse 14. I want you to think as you look throughout the scriptures in your own mind... How the word show or how the word reveal is used. You see, in the scriptures, revealing or showing is not something that's purely done intellectually. It's not just that the Lord, as it were, makes some kind of verbal disclosure of something. Take, for example, what you have the Lord saying to Moses in Exodus 14. Fear ye not and stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will show to you the, to the today. For the Egyptians whom ye have seen today ye shall see them again no more forever. In that sense, friend, the, re- the idea of revelation, the idea of showing, is just this. That God will fulfill His word. And by experience, Moses would see the Lord doing these things. By experience, Moses would find that the Lord, everything that he had promised, the Lord would bring to pass. If you take even Psalm 98, you have the same theme. His right hand and His holy arm hath gotten him the victory. The Lord hath made known his salvation. His righteousness hath he openly showed in the sight of the heathen. It's not just that God has made a public disclosure. It's not just that God has revealed by word his salvation. But the sense in both texts is that by experience, by experience, by witnesses to the Lord's work, they have been shown his salvation. They've been shown his word. And so, friend, what you have in Psalm 25.14 is not just the idea that God is going to reveal by word what His covenant is. It's so much more than that. He will show them so that their knowledge is one of experience. He will show them the covenant in the sense that they will have an intellectual and an experiential acquaintance with that covenant. This is an experiential knowledge that Psalm 25.14 has in view. And so we can paraphrase the text this way. The Lord will make known his intimate counsel, his secret, to those who fear him. He will give them a knowledge of his covenant. A knowledge of experience. A knowledge of fulfillment. Now friend, as we look at Psalm 25, 14, and we hold this 14th verse in connection with all that goes before and all that comes after... I think we do find this 14th verse forms for us the foundation of the whole. What we find here is that every petition is squared to this promise. The psalmist is simply asking that God's covenant mercy would be known to him. And what does the 14th verse say? It says very pointedly, by experience those who trust the Lord will have that kind of knowledge. By experience they will know his covenant as it is fulfilled to them. It's the very thing the psalmist is praying for. And then as the psalmist meditates throughout this psalm, you'll find that everything that he looks to, everything, that he has, everything he expects to come upon the godly, is because they are united to the Lord their God. The Lord who is the one who is pleased to be called His people's salvation. Everything then, friend, in this psalm is really founded in verse 14. The secret of the Lord is with them that fear Him, and He will show them His covenant. And so what we find here, friend, is just this. This pattern that you have in all of Psalm 25, and this promise that's held out to us in verse 14, is just this. That believers will gain greater experiential knowledge of the covenant of grace. Believers will gain greater experiential knowledge of the covenant of grace. And I want us to see that under three headings. I want us to look at this, first of all, as the man here in view knows something more of pardon, as he knows something then of purification, and lastly, as he knows something of God's gracious preservation. But before we go any further, allow me to say that that first point, the psalmist's knowledge, his acquaintance with pardon, that will really occupy the majority of our time this morning. Because in Psalm 25, you have a staggering thing. In Psalm 25, you have a man who once... Not only once, but time and again goes to God seeking this. This knowledge of the Lord's pardon. But friend, as you look at Psalm 25, it does raise a question, doesn't it? This man who is suing, as it were, at the throne of grace for the Lord's pardon. It raises a question because this is a man who already calls the Lord his God. In fact, this is the same man who says that he is trusting the Lord, verse 2. Verse 5, he already calls God the God of his salvation. You see, friend, everything already in Psalm 25 tells us that the psalmist is a man who is already in covenant with God. A man who already can claim Jehovah as the God of his salvation. My friend, what does that mean? Well, the implication is very basic, isn't it? The psalmist numbers himself among those he describes in Psalm 32. We saw this last midweek, but in Psalm 32, you remember what the psalmist says. Blessed, he says, is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity. The idea is the psalmist sees himself among that number. And so is the psalmist now asking for pardon. If he's already, as it were, righteous before God... Why does he sue at the throne of grace for pardon? You see, friend, this is a question for all believers. The psalmist, Psalm 103, he describes believers as, God forgiveth all thine iniquities as far as the east is from the west. So far hath he removed our transgressions from us. There is no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Christ presents such believers holy and unblameable and unreprovable in God's sight. He quickened together with them, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting ordinances that was against them, which was contrary to them, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And the question then is, how can a believer, justified in God's sight as we've just described, be asking for God's pardon? If he truly was justified once for all, why the petitions of Psalm 25? Well, friend, there are two basic explanations for that. But the first thing I need to tell you is the psalmist here is not praying for God to justify him again. He's not. In Christ, all of his sins, past, present, and future, are dealt with in toto. There is nothing left. The wrath of God has entirely been meted out upon Christ for the believer. There is no condemning power in the law, as the apostle says, for the believer any longer. But the believer is still to cry out for the Lord's pardon in two senses. First of all, he requires the sensible pardon of God. In other words, his experience of that pardon. Just to give you an example, friend. When you look throughout the scriptures, what does sin do to the believer? Well, it wastes conscience. Psalm 32. My bones wax old through my roaring all the day. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer. There is no rest in my bones because of my sin, the psalmist says in Psalm 38. Psalm 38. And so the believer as he goes to God pleading for pardon part of what he's asking for is just this what the psalmist does in Psalm 51 Restore to me the joy of thy salvation. The point that the psalmist is making here is that he craves that not just the actual justification he already enjoys but a sense of pardon. The experience that God himself is truly reconciled his sins dealt with. But secondly friend As you look at how sin affects the believer in Scripture... You'll find that sin also... Not only does it waste his sense of pardon... But it also confuses his evidence of grace. Christ says, if you love me, keep my commandments. So then John says... By this we know that we love love the children of God... When we love God and keep His commandments. Our holding fast to the law of Christ... Is taken rightfully as an evidence of our walking in grace... But friend, when we lapse, that evidence becomes confused. We begin to wonder, is this really the rising of a dominion of sin? Am I still under the dominion of sin? And so Edwards, I think, very helpfully points this out to us. He writes, men are doubtless to blame for being in a dead, carnal frame. But when they are in such a frame and have no sensible experience of the exercises of grace, but on the contrary are very much under the prevalence of their lusts and an unchristian spirit... They are not to blame for doubting of their state. What is Edwards saying, very pointedly? It is entirely natural and right for a believer when he sins, especially when those sins are habitual, to wonder, Am I really in Christ? Edwards goes on to write It is as impossible in the nature of things that a holy and Christian hope should be kept alive in its clearness and strength in such circumstances. As it is to keep the light in the room when the candle that, go, that gives it is put out. The point is, is that sin does this to the believer. The reality is, sin wastes conscience. Sin aggravates the man to the point where, as the man, even though he stands as a vessel of grace, he finds himself as it were put to an extremity because of his own transgression. Psalm thirty-two. But also, sin does this. It confuses him. So that his hope is not so vibrant as it was once. But friend, I'm putting all of these things to you, not just to tell you about realities, but to set them in the context of the petition of Psalm 25. The psalmist here is not merely saying these things to us because these are his experiences. He is really bringing them to God, to a God with whom he is in covenant. And the senses, friend, that he sees here the covenant provides not only his freedom from condemnation. That's wonderful enough. God's grace should be prayed for eternity. Just that that is the case. That God is pleased to take sinners who are under the condemnation of the law. And to make them vessels of grace. Those whose, to whom Christ's righteousness is imputed. And their sinfulness entirely done away with. But there's even more than that in the covenant. Even here, the psalmist is looking to the idea that in this covenant, what he prays that he would know by experience is that God would also secure his comfort. The return of that sensible assurance. He sees that in the covenant as well. A friend, there's another sense too in which the believer asks for pardon. We would call this the formal sense. If the first is the sensible pardon, this is the formal You see, the covenant promises believers release even from temporal chastening that sin brings. No, the believer is never again under the condemnation of the law. But the Lord does chasten His own. He does chasten them for their sins. If His children forsake my loss of the Scriptures and walk not in my judgments, if they break my statutes and keep not my commandments, then will I visit their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. Nevertheless, my loving kindness will I not utterly take from Him nor suffer my faithfulness to fail. It's a remarkable thing, isn't it? That here, people who had sinned against the Lord God would not have His loving kindness taken away from them, but instead, as a paternal act, He would chasten them. But then, friends, as you look at Hebrews 12, you find even something deeper. The Apostle writes, Despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of Him. For whom the Lord loveth, He chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom He receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you you as sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. The point is, this chastening is necessary to the believer, if he really is a son. That's the idea. But friend, as you look at verses 16-18 to of our psalm, I want you to find that that is really the principal focus. He is a man who is afflicted, who sees himself chastened by sin. Turn thee unto me, and have mercy upon me, for I am desolate and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. O bring thou me out of distresses. Look upon mine affliction and my pain, and forgive all my sins. The point that the psalmist has in view here is that he has sinned as a man who is in covenant. And God is visiting him with chastening, and rightfully so. And so, friend, what does the psalmist say? He says here, very pointedly, that he is asking that God, as an act of covenant mercy, would come to him, be gracious to him, and even deliver him out from underneath this rod. Friend, there are two more things in the covenant than that are wonderful. Is it not wonderful that our God is a God who has entered into covenant with sinners, that he might chasten them, not to destroy them, but to correct them lovingly? That's an amazing thing, isn't it? That God would deal with sinners as with sons. But then isn't even more staggering what here the psalmist has in view? That the covenant even promises them deliverance out from under that rod. That the covenant even secures for them temporal peace and temporal deliverance as they turn to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Rutherford puts it this way. Our deliverance as believers from misery is twofold, as our misery is. First, there is a guilt of sin, or our obligation to eternal wrath. The other misery is the blot of internal guilt of sin. In regard to the former, we are freely and perfectly justified, and pardoned once for all sins in our person and state. Through sense of this, though, and in regard of deliverance from temporal judgments and doubtings, And fears of eternal wrath. Every day while we seek daily bread. We desire. That our sins may be forgiven. And the point friend of Psalm 25 is. The psalmist says. Even these things are in the covenant. Not just. Free and full justification. That would be enough friend. For us to praise God for an eternity. But it's even more than this. The man goes to the covenant. For a sense of pardon. In this life. He goes to the covenant even now to seek deliverance from the temporal rod, from even the chastening hand of God. And both of these things, he says, are to be found in the covenant of grace. And both of these, crucially, he says, will be revealed by experience to the believer, to those who fear the Lord. A friend, take the apostle's analogy of Hebrews 12 just for a moment to illustrate. You have here an example of paternal care. And it's manifest in loving chastening. It's manifest in God's tender correction. Friend, think about this house just a, a bit further. All those who are part of it, all those who are redeemed are adopted. They're adopted into this house and so they're sheltered from the storm of God's wrath. They're brought out from underneath the condemnation of the law. And so we could say very pointedly, that is the great thing of the covenant. That eternal wrath has been averted for their sakes. But the covenant even goes further. The covenant goes on to the next step. And that is not only are they brought into a house and kept from the storm, but as a father, God nourishes them, provides for them food, provides for them that which is necessary to sustain their lives. Uh, friend, that will be enough, too, for us to praise and laud God for eternity. That He would be so loving and so kind to those who were once objects of wrath. And then you come to the third point. And the third point is that as they're in this home, the Lord God takes an interest in actually disciplining them and correcting them for their good and for His glory. Again, friend, that should lead to our praise. What's staggering about what we've just taken up is that there's yet a fourth aspect of being brought into this house. There's a fourth thing that the psalmist has in mind. And that is that the covenant says the believer will know by experience the tokens of God's love. They will know by experience to some degree assurance of pardon. They will know By experience, that God is a God who even delivers His own out from under the rod. Friend, all of those things are tokens of divine love. All of those things are promised in the covenant. And so, friend, do you need a sense, a renewed sense of assurance this morning? Do you need a renewed sense of your pardon this morning? Do you need New deliverance. From new chastening. Do you need to be newly brought out from under the rod? The psalmist says you need to look only to the covenant. For those things. But secondly and thirdly. As we we hasten to the close. The psalmist looks not only to pardon. But he also looks to purification. And he finds it in the covenant. He says here in verses 4 and 5. Show me thy ways O Lord. Teach me thy paths lead me in thy truth and teach me. Again, as you look at verse 9, the meek will he guide in judgment, the meek will he teach his way. It's important for me to tell you here that what you have in view here is not just an intellectual kind of awareness of the Lord's path. It's not just that the Lord is giving him in an intellectual sense, just the duties that are incumbent upon those who are in covenant with God. It's so much more than that. The sense is, is that God will actually lead them, teach them so as to incline them to these things. In other words friend what you have here. Is the psalmist is praying nothing less than just, just this. That God would incline his heart. To those things that would, be, that would be in accord with the law of God. Those things that a man who is in covenant with God should be doing. In other words his prayer is very much like what you have in Psalm 119. As you look there in verses 33 and following. He cries teach me O Lord the way of thy statutes. And and I shall keep it unto the end. Obviously, the teaching the psalmist has in view there is something that leads to real obedience. It's not merely head knowledge. He goes on, Give me understanding, and I shall keep thy law. I shall observe it with my whole heart. Make me to go in the path of thy commandments, for therein do I delight. We could go on, but the point is, this kind of instruction that the psalmist longs for is that kind of thing that we find in sanctification. Where a man, where a woman is brought more and more into conformity to the image of Christ. He longs to walk more and more worthily of the gospel. And that's the petition. That's the petition that we read of in verses 4 and 5, the promise that we read of in verse 9 of Psalm 25. That God will indeed purify in this life, and it's even part of the covenant that he should do so, his people. You see, friend. To the believer, this is great comfort. I mean, to the believer, this is something that is incredible. It's something that really answers the craving that he has. I mean, take Psalm 7. I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. But I see another law of my members warring against the law of my mind. And bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members... O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Friend, what do you have in Romans 7? Very pointedly, it's just this: the man longs to be dead more and more to sin. He longs, in other words, for the very thing that the psalmist prays for in Psalm 25, that the Lord would teach him effectually, that the Lord would teach him so that his inclination is brought. To obedience, he longs. In other words, friend, to be purified more and more. And this is the bankruptcy, isn't it, of modern evangelicalism? The psalmist says, "Even in the covenant is this to be found: this purifying work of grace, this sanctifying work of Christ." But modern evangelical, modern evangelicalism, Arminianism, well, they really say that there is no grace that can incline us to obedience everything everything alone is to be found only for men as they bow down to the idol of free will no friend in the covenant of grace there is real grace that inclines souls to obedience and it's this that the psalmist prays for more and more and it's this in psalm 25:14 that is promised it's promised to those who fear the lord that they will have an experiential knowledge of that grace Here is the covenant. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away your heart of flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes. And ye shall keep my judgments, and do them. I will make an everlasting covenant with them, and I will not turn away from them to do them good. But I will put my fear in their hearts, that they shall not depart from me. All of these things, the works of God, and all of these things found in the covenant of grace. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, says the Apostle, but for it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. This is the will of God, says the Apostle, even your sanctification. And friend, if you need anything more to show us that even this grace is offered in the covenant, look only to the name of Jesus, as we saw in Matthew's Gospel. Jesus, He's called Jesus because He shall save His people from their sins. Not merely the consequence of sins, but even its dominion and its power. More and more, friend, the believer finds, by experience, that covenant grace leads them to purity. Causes them to die more to sin. And live more to righteousness. And friend, this delights the believer, and this is the thing the believer craves. And so we move then from the analogy of the house, where the father is not only content to give them shelter from the storm, but earnest to set before his children tokens of his love. We move from that analogy to another analogy. Friend, the psalmist has in view the very same thing, the same kind of idea that you have in Song of Solomon 5. How is the church presented as she is living in the wilderness? Leaning upon her beloved walking. Leaning. Her whole weight cast upon him. As he carries her. As he teaches her. Inclines her to walk in obedience. friend? that's the idea that we have in view here. The psalmist is casting himself upon Christ. Pleading that the Lord would lead him. And guide him. As all of his weight falls upon, upon his broad-shouldered Savior. And so, friend, what sins, what lusts must be slain this morning? What coldness must be warmed? What hardness must be softened? Fred, all of those things are sins. And staggeringly, friend, in the covenant, all of those sins, all of those sins to the exclusion of none, God provides for in the covenant of grace. That his believers would die more and more to them, and by experience know that he is a God who is concerned, as they're so desirous to be, conformed more to the likeness of Christ. And so come for it all. Come to this covenant, not only for a renewed for pardon formal and sensible. Come not only to this covenant because it sets before you ongoing purification, secures your sanctification. But friend, come now as we see the third point. Come now also for preservation. Verse 15, the psalmist writes thus, He shall, that is the Lord, pluck my feet out of the net. Verse 21, the psalmist tells us thus, Let integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait on thee. The sense is very basic. The man here, the believer, goes to the covenant for what? Well, it's just this. For the continuance of all that has gone before. Pluck me out from the net. Preserve me and keep me. And he says all of these things belong to the covenant. And their continuance belongs to the covenant. All of these graces that he's had in view. And all of these things for which he's pleading. Friend, all of them, he says, are to continue. Because the Lord has so sworn and what's staggering, friend, is that the covenant promises that the believer will know these things by experience. They'll know by experience the continued preservation of grace. The illustration here, then, is just this. That Christ, in the covenant, holds a vice grip over his people. That's what this covenant holds out to us. Not only does it secure their pardon in Not only does it secure for them the idea that once justified and so long as they didn't sin, they would only then enjoy the sense of pardon and and of reconciliation with God. But it offers them so much more. It offers even this, that that sense can be returned even after they sin against covenant love. And then it's even more than that, isn't it? That even even though they are a people who who have been delivered from the dominion of sin... Christ offers this. That they would continue to die from its power. He offers them that. And he offers them that their whole life long. Christ holds his own friend with an iron. With a vice grip. And that's the very thing the psalmist looks to. That preserving grace. That grace that holds out all of these things to him constantly. his so friend relinquish every. Every other sense of stability. Relinquish every other sense of hope. Square all only to the covenant. You have no stability outside of this. You have no hope of preservation outside of this. The psalmist knows this and we should as well. But as we close, just two brief thoughts for application. Friend, all of these things the psalmist looks for in the covenant, but the word of God is very clear. All of these things are embodied in Christ. Of God are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth let him glory in the Lord. Christ is made unto believers all of these things. Wisdom, righteousness, sanctification... And redemption. It's the, it's the very passage that we read in Isaiah 42. He is the covenant that was given for the people. He is the covenant that was given as a light for the Gentiles. And so friend as the psalmist looks to the covenant. He really looks to Christ. Who is the embodiment of that covenant itself. And so friend the question is. As we prepare to come to the table. Are we such people? Are we people who are looking to Christ in this way? The answer to that question is really going to be found in answers to further questions. First question perhaps we should ask ourselves is, are we trusting in our own preparation for the supper? Are we trusting in our own preparation? Are we trusting in the bare ritual, the bare ceremony of the sacrament? Is that what we're entrusting ourselves to this morning? You see, friend, those who would commune with Christ aright, who look to Christ as the psalmist does in our text, are those who cry, even as they sit at the table, We are unprofitable servants, we have done that which is our duty to do, and even then they cry, and even there we sin. Even there, we are unprofitable servants. Friend, that is for whom the table was given. Do we come? Confessing our only hope is Christ as he's clothed in the gospel. A word of comfort though comes from this text. And that is just this. Friend, all that we see in this text. All of the psalmist pleads for. That renewed sense of pardon. That ongoing work of purification. And that hope of preservation. All of those things are held out to the believer. All of those things are signed and sealed in the sacrament. All of those things are founded there. But even more than that, as our text tells us, friend, if you are numbered among those who are trusting in the Lord, you are promised even greater experience of all of those things in this life. And why not at the table today? Why not those things that you so need? Why not find it at the table, even this morning? You can only do so, friend, as you look to Christ by faith. But do not live at the hand of the Most High. God may grant those things to you in an unexpected way, even this morning. And so come to Christ. Find Him offered in Scripture and in sacrament, signed and sealed, offering you nothing less And the very unsearchable riches. That we contemplated here this morning. Amen. We come now to the observation. Of the sacrament. And so I'd ask the session. If they would come forward to the front please. And as they do. I'll read to to you the terms of communicant membership. The terms are as follows. I accept the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments as the word of God and the only infallible rule of faith and practice. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the only Redeemer of men, supreme in church and state, and in dependence on divine grace, I take him as my Savior and Lord. I promise by divine grace to show you a teachable and submissive spirit to the teaching of Scripture as set forth in the testimony of the Reformed Presbyterian Church of Ireland. I promise that by the help of the Holy Spirit I will endeavor to live a life consistent with my profession. I'll read to you now the words of institution, taken here from 1 Corinthians 11. I received of the Lord that which also I have delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take ye, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup, when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood as do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as oft as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show forth the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak, and sickly among you, and many sleep. I read to you those last two verses that are not usually included um, to set before you the solemnity of the occasion. This is not a small thing. This is not bare, empty ritual. The apostle puts it this way. If a man does eat, does drink unworthily, he is guilty of nothing less than the body and blood of the Lord. And so, the call here is to examine ourselves. Are we those who discern the Lord's body or right? You see, friend, for those, as this, the apostle describes it for us in the text that we just read, for those who eat and drink unworthily, the sacrament becomes something like the waters of jealousy of Numbers 5. Remember there that the priest was to mix a certain potion, to, to have the woman who was suspected of adultery to drink it. And if she drank it and she was guilty, her, her flesh would bear, would bear the, the mark of her guilt. Friend, it's the case that often those who eat and drink unworthily bear in their lives the mark of their unworthy eating and drinking. An institution of God that was created by the Lord Jesus Christ for the strengthening of his people as a conduit for his grace becomes a means of hardening if we partake unworthily. As the Apostle described circumcision in Galatians 5, so we can describe the Lord's Supper uh, in our own day for those who partake unworthily. It becomes, as it were, a sign and a seal of the covenant of works. They would approach God, but not through Christ. And so it signs and seals their unworthiness. And so, friend, examine. Examine yourself. You stand before God. And as we said last midweek, it's right for us to think of this meeting like we would think of our passing the threshold of eternity and seeing Christ face to face. This is the closest meeting we should expect as believers with Christ here. And so it's fitting for us to examine ourselves. But friend, even as we do so, it's important for me to set before you the invitation. And the invitation is to come. And perhaps you're wondering, well, I'm not so sure. I'm not sure if I really am numbered among those who are in Christ. I make a profession of faith. And... I certainly desire only to cling to Christ, it seems, but I'm just not sure. May I come to this table. I'll just read to you from the larger catechism. May one who doubteth of his being in Christ or of his due preparation come to the Lord's Supper. One who doubteth of his being in Christ or of his due preparation to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper may have true interest in Christ, though he be not yet assured thereof. And in God's account, he hath it, if he be duly affected with the apprehension of the want of it, and unfeignedly desires to be found in Christ, and to depart from iniquity. In which case, because promises are made and this sacrament is appointed for the relief even of weak and doubting Christians, he is to bewail his unbelief and labor to have his doubts removed. And so doing, he may and ought to come to the Lord's Supper. That he may be further strengthened. In short, friend, if you are crying after Christ, the sacrament is for you, weak and doubting as you might be, as ill prepared as we may be. The calling is if we come with repentance and looking to Christ by faith, the call is to come. And so, of course, we invite all those, all those to come. Who look to Christ by faith. As we look to observe the sacrament together. Just a further thought based on Psalm 25 and the 14th verse. We're told there, of course, those who fear the Lord will have this secret known to them. They'll have a greater experience of the covenant of grace as its benefits are applied. And friend, it's right for us just to meditate for a moment. Who are those who are the recipients of this greater knowledge? This experience of the covenant of grace fulfilled to them. Well friend, as you look at Psalm 25, we saw even last midweek. The kind of people they are. They are those, of course, who are looking to the Lord. They're looking to the Lord by faith and trusting themselves entirely to Christ. But friend, they acknowledge even... Even as they cling to the promise, they acknowledge that they've sinned not only not only against the light of nature, but also against the light of scripture. They've received so much from the Lord's hand and they've sinned against the Lord's loving kindness. They've sinned not only as those who are lost and undone in Adam. They've also sinned as those who are united to Christ. In other words, they were saints who had walked with the Lord. And their walk their walk included sin. They confess and they lament these things before the Lord. But the wonderful thing about Psalm 25 is that the psalmist says that even that pardoning grace is opened to them. And every, ben- every benefit, every blessing of the covenant of grace is still opened to them as they look to Christ. My friend, as we observe the sacrament this morning... That certainly must be our work. We must be looking to Christ once again as sinners. Confessing our failings not only as those of the lost race of man. But also as those who have been redeemed by Christ. But who have sinned against covenant love. To come afresh. To renew our vows to the Lord. And to look by faith to Christ for the continued experience and fulfillment of his covenant promises to us.
1: And so as we do so by faith.
0: We are promised that this is indeed a sign and seal of the sacrament, a sign and seal, rather, of the covenant of grace, a sacrament for our encouragement and strengthening even in this life. We'll read to you again the words of institution. The Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and said, Take eat. This is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the Lord's pattern, let's return once again and give thanks to the Lord. Let us pray. Our gracious and merciful God, we come. Father, thankful that you are a God who is pleased to look after weary pilgrims. A God who is pleased to institute means through which your people may expect. And expect through Christ, strengthening and help. And, Father, we pray that as we come to this table, solemn occasion as it is, we pray, Father, that we would find by experience that this is a means of grace, a means of strengthening. Father, we pray that even now, as we commune, Father, we pray that we would do so with an eye fixed upon Christ, every benefit that is found to be in him. And, Father, we pray that we would do so renouncing all self-righteousness, Clinging only to his satisfactory work in redeeming us. And Father, clinging only to the hope, to, this, to the promise that is yea and amen in Christ. That he who has begun this work in us will see it to the end. Father, be gracious to us. We do thank you for the sacrament. We thank you now for the bread and for the wine. We pray that you would bless it through us truly as a means of grace. We ask all in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, broke it, and said, Take eat, this is my body, which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This is the cup of the New Testament in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show forth the Lord's death till he come." We contemplate those to whom the secret of the Lord is revealed. Those to whom the covenant of grace by experience is made known. It's quite fitting for us to return to that question. Well, what really is the covenant? What is its foundation? And as we already said, of course, the Lord God describes Christ himself as that covenant that was given. And so, friend, as we come to the sacrament this morning, we do so seeking to feed Upon Christ. As we look to the covenant. Of course. And we look to the mediator of that covenant. We should still have in our minds. The words that we read from John 6. If we feed upon Christ. We will find that feeding upon him. Will never hunger again. Feeding upon him by faith. We really are nourished. For time and for eternity. You see friend. That is really how one knows. The covenant of grace by experience. More of Christ. More of the one who is nourishment itself. More of the one who, as we read from from Isaiah 42, he takes even the smoking flax and the bruised reed, neither quenching the one nor breaking the other, but tendering to them his grace and his love. As we look to Christ by faith, that is the Christ whom we behold. If we would have the secret of the Lord revealed to us, but friend, it is only by faith in this Christ, who is the covenant itself, that we will find it. And may we so partake this morning. The Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take eat, this is my body, which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. Let's return once again to the throne of grace and give thanks. Our gracious and merciful God, we do come before you thankful that you are a God who is pleased not only to give us breath, not only to provide for us shelter in this life, not only to provide for us nourishment. But Father, we thank you that even in this life and even now, you give opportunity that your people may feed upon Christ in special ways. Oh, Father, cause us to feed upon him right Cause us to feed upon him by faith. Renouncing ourselves and everything that the flesh would cling to. Father cause us to be a people who renounce the world. And and who are pleased to renounce all of its wares. Just to take hold of Christ. To pronounce all of their offerings as vanity. And to see Christ and he alone. As that which we need. Father give us such hearts even now. Lord as we renew our covenant As we renew our obligations in this covenant of grace even this morning. Father we pray that we would do so. Mindful that it is entirely befitting for those who have been bought with the price of Christ's own blood. To live as his slaves. And Father we pray as well. That we would find in his service. Well Father we pray that we would find in his service more. Than what the world may offer in its vain freedom. That we would find here even this morning grace. Find here love unspeakable. Cause us, Father, to be even as those who were described before. People full whose joy is full of glory. Because they behold by faith Christ, the Lord of glory himself. Bless us, O gracious God, to these ends. As we ask all in Jesus' precious name. Amen. <coughs> the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup, when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as often as ye drink it, in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread, and drink this cup, ye do show forth the Lord's death, till ye come. We conclude our service of worship. and invite you to turn with me in your psalters to Psalm 22. Psalm 22, verses 22 to 28. Once more, we'll stand to praise God. And afterward, please remain standing for prayer and the benediction. Let's stand. Praise the Lord. Father, thankful that you are a God of grace. A God in whom there is more mercy than there is sin in us. A God who is pleased through the Lord Jesus Christ to sign and to seal every promise. To encourage poor pilgrims on the way heavenly, even on the morning of this morning. Father, we thank you that you are such a God you are so pleased, and so pleased to be so gracious to people such as we are. Father, we thank you that in the Lord Jesus Christ, every promise we know is yea and even. And so, Father, we are thankful for that promise, that those who are in the covenant of grace will only know increasingly and by experience that you are a God who is faithful to your covenant. You are a God who is pleased, even now, to apply so that they know by, by and through fulfillment all that is promised to them through Christ. O oh, Father, cause us to look to him by faith, even now. Or do not let us forget what we have what we observed this morning. Or do not let us forget the vows that we have made. Nor let us forget, gracious God, the promises that have been signed and sealed to us even each we ask all in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Amen. We
0: receive now the most an The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make His face shine upon me and be gracious unto me. The Lord lift up His
1: countenance upon me and give me peace. Amen.
0: As we look to observe the sacrament together, just a further thought based on Psalm 25 and the 14th verse. We're told there, of course, those who fear the Lord will have this secret known to them. They'll have a greater experience of the covenant of grace as its benefits are applied. And friend, it's right for us just to meditate for a moment. Who are those who are the recipients of this greater knowledge? This experience of the covenant of grace fulfilled to them. Well, friend, as you look at Psalm 25, we saw even last midweek the kind of people they are. They are those, of course, who are looking to the Lord. They're looking to the Lord by faith and trusting themselves entirely to Christ. But friend, they acknowledge even even as they cling to the promise. They acknowledge that they've sinned. Not only, not only against the light of nature, but also against the light of Scripture. They've received so much from the Lord's hand and they've sinned against the Lord's loving kindness. They've sinned not only as those who are lost and undone in Adam. They've also sinned as those who are united to Christ. In other words, they were saints who had walked with the Lord, and their walk, their walk included sin. They confess and they lament these things before the Lord, but The wonderful thing about Psalm 25 is that the psalmist says that even that pardoning grace is opened to them. And every every benefit, every blessing of the covenant of grace is still opened to them as they look to Christ. My friend, as we observe the sacrament this morning, that certainly must be our work. We must be looking to Christ once again as sinners, confessing our failings not only as those of the lost race of man, but also as those who have been redeemed by Christ, but who have sinned against covenant love, to come afresh, to renew our vows to the Lord, and to look by faith to Christ for the continued experience and fulfillment of his covenant promises to us. And so as we do so by faith, we are promised that this is indeed a sign and seal of the sacrament, a sign and seal, rather, of the covenant of grace, a sacrament for our encouragement and strengthening even in this life. We'll read to you again the words of institution. The Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the Lord's pattern, let's return once again and give thanks to the Lord. Let us pray. Our gracious and merciful God, we come... Father, thankful that you are a God who is pleased to look after weary pilgrims, a God who is pleased to institute means through which your people may expect and expect through Christ, strengthening and help. And Father, we pray that as we come to this table, solemn occasion as it is, we pray, Father, that we would find by experience that this is a means of grace, a means of strengthening, Father, we pray that even now, as we commune, Father, we pray that we would do so with an eye fixed upon Christ, every benefit that is found to be in him. And Father, we pray that we would do so renouncing all self-righteousness, clinging only to his satisfactory work in redeeming us. And Father, clinging only to the whole, to to the promise that is yea and amen in Christ, that he who has begun this work in us We'll see it to the end. Father, be gracious to us. We do thank you for the sacrament. We thank you now for the bread and for the wine. We pray that you would bless it to us truly as a means of grace. We ask all in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, broke it and said, Take eat. this is my body, which is broken for you. Let's do remembrance with me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This is the cup of the New Testament in my blood. This do as often as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show forth the Lord's death till he come. As we continue in worship to God, we take up our psalters. Turn now to Psalm 118. Now singing the last several verses. Psalm 118, verses 20 to 29. We'll stand to praise our God with these words, Psalm 118, 20 to 29. And as we do so, we'll we'll be inviting them the second setting to come forward we'll stand once more to praise our God Psalm 118 <clears throat> secret of the Lord is revealed. Those to whom the covenant of grace by experience is made known. It's quite fitting for us to return to that question. Well, what really is the covenant? What is its foundation? And as we already said, of course, the Lord God describes Christ himself as that covenant that was given. And so, friend, as we come to the sacrament this morning, we do so seeking to feed upon Christ. As we look to the covenant, of course, and we look to the mediator of that covenant, we should still have in our minds the words that we read from John 6. If we feed upon Christ, we will find that feeding upon him will never hunger again. Feeding upon him by faith, we really are nourished for time and for eternity. You see, friend, that is really how one knows the covenant of grace by experience. More of Christ more of the one who is nourishment itself, more of the one who, as we read from from Isaiah 42, he takes even the smoking flax and the bruised reed, neither quenching the one nor breaking the other, but tendering to them his grace and his love. As we look to Christ by faith, that is the Christ whom we behold. If we would have the secret of the Lord revealed to us, My friend, it is only by faith in this Christ, who is the covenant itself, that we will find it. And may we so partake this morning. The Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take eat, this is my body, which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. Let's return once again to the throne of grace and give thanks. Our gracious and merciful God, we do come before you thankful that you are a God who is pleased not only to give us breath, not only to provide for us shelter in this life, not only to provide for us nourishment. But Father, we thank you that even in this life and even now, you give opportunity that your people may feed upon Christ in special ways. O oh, Father, cause us to feed upon him right Cause us to feed upon him by faith. Renouncing ourselves and everything that the flesh would cling to. Father cause us to be a people who renounce the world. And and who are pleased to renounce all of its wares. Just to take hold of Christ. To pronounce all of their offerings as vanity. And to see Christ and he alone. As that which we need. Father give us such hearts even now. Lord as we renew our covenant. As we renew our obligations in this covenant of grace even this morning. Father we pray that we would do so. Mindful that it is entirely befitting for those who have been bought with the price of Christ's own blood. To live as his slaves. And Father we pray as well. That we would find in his service. Oh Father we pray that we would find in his service more. Than what the world may offer in its vain freedom. That we would find here even this morning grace. Find here love unspeakable. Cause us, Father, to be even as those who were described before. People full whose joy is full of glory. Because they behold by faith Christ, the Lord of glory himself. Bless us, O gracious God, to these ends. As we ask all in Jesus' precious name. Amen. The Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take ye, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show forth the Lord's death till he come. As we conclude our service of worship, I invite you to turn with me in your psalters to Psalm 22. Psalm 22, verses 22 to 28. Once more, we'll stand to praise God. And afterward, please remain standing for prayer and the benediction. Let's stand. Praise the Lord.